Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. On today's episode, I'm glad to be welcoming Paul Gould. Paul and I discussed his latest book, A Good and True Story, 11 Clues to Understanding Our Universe and Your Place in It. He shares with us how we all inhabit a story, and that within that story that we inhabit, there are signs that point us to the meaning of our story. Paul walks us through the implications of the various stories that we might believe about our lives, and some of those signs that point us to what is the good and true story. Paul Gould is Associate Professor of Philosophy and Director of the Philosophy of Religion Master's Program at Palm Beach Atlantic University in West Palm Beach, Florida. He is the founder and president of the Two Tasks Institute, an apologetics institute and podcast, and is on the faculty of Summit Ministries and the Colson Center Fellows Program. Gould is the author of 11 books, including The Story of the Cosmos and the award-winning Cultural Apologetics. Before we get into this conversation, let me encourage you to subscribe to Filter wherever you get your podcasts, as well as subscribing to our email list so that you don't miss out on any future episodes. Just click the link in the show notes below and you can sign up for our email list on my website. Also, if you have been helped by this episode or any of our other ones, let me encourage you to share Filter with your friends and to leave us a rating and review. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and write a review on Apple Podcast. Where you take these simple steps, it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this great conversation that I got to have with Paul Gould. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Aaron. It's great to be with you today. Yeah, well, glad to have you here. I've been uh, following your writing for a while now and appreciate the work that you're doing. And so it's an honor to get to have you on the show and get to talk to you today. Why don't you start by telling everybody a little bit about your story? We've heard your bio and what you you do professionally, uh, but tell us how you got there and what attracted you to uh, start the journey that led you to where you are now. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I think I can do this fairly quickly, but became a Christian in college. So I was confronted with the claims of Christianity, um, grew up in a religious home, but just sort of missed the gospel and became a Christian in college. And I just knew at that time I was either all in or all out, right? So I kind of examined the, the claims for Christianity, tried to refute it, didn't want it to be true, realized it was true. And God just sort of brought me to a place where I eventually, the, in between my freshman and sophomore year, bent my knee and became a Christian. Um, and so from there, uh, I had always wanted to be like my father and be a businessman. And so I continued, I graduated in accounting uh, with my undergrad degree and was a CPA for a number of years. But because God got a hold of my heart in college and also my wife, who I met in college, we both became Christians in college um, through a campus ministry called Crew. And so we had a real heart for college students. And so mm-hmm. pretty early on in our marriage, we uh, left the business world and, and became campus ministers with crew. And uh, for about 16 years, that's what we did. And it was in that time that God sort of began to sort of shape and lead me to where I am today. And, and to make that long story short, um, in my evangelism, and my, I always sort of veered toward the intellectuals or those who thought they were intellectuals and loved just talking about the gospel in the context of ideas. And so that... Those kinds of experiences surfaced in me a passion for learning, and that set me on a path um, you know, that begins with apologetics and, and then quickly moves to philosophy and theology, kind of set me on a path where um, just realized that God was calling me to be a niche player in the kingdom of God. So from there, we went to Talbot School of Theology and did their MA in philosophy and loved it. Uh, and so from there, went and got somehow got into a PhD program at, at Purdue. And, and the cool thing, at, at, as a graduate student here in the States, in philosophy is you get to teach undergraduates. And so that was where I realized, I think for the first time, that my heart sings in the classroom and that this is what God has made me for. And I can remember walking into these undergrad philosophy classes, always a little nervous and, you know, maybe just thinking about whatever else is going on in my, in my life. But, you know, every hour walking out of that with just a skip in my step and just my heart singing because I just love the interaction with students. And I think that's also where you transition from learning about philosophy to becoming a philosopher and, and kind of, you know, doing things on your, learning to think on your feet and things like that. So, yeah. So God just sort of gently, um, 
has led me along the way to to realizing that my gifts and abilities are in communicating and teaching and and uh, shepherding and mentoring. And so uh, from there, you know, finished with the PhD and eventually sort of found my way into academia and and now I um, lead a program which is kind of at the perfect nexus of all the ways that God has made me a building I, I lead a, a, a direct uh, master's in philosophy of religion program where you get to build I get to lead I get to teach and I get to write so it's kind of that sweet spot and really having a lot of fun here in South Florida at Palm Beach Atlantic University yeah yeah that's awesome yeah, well, I love what you guys are doing at the school and with the uh, with the program. I have a master's in apologetics, and so nice. I'm always excited to see schools offering those yeah. degrees and uh, and doing them well. And I think that you guys uh, down there, I've looked at the program, and y- y- y'all are doing it really well. So yeah. I appreciate that. If anybody's listening and interested in apologetics programs, make sure to check them out. But you just have a new book that came out called mm-hmm. A Good and True Story. And early in the book, you wrote, discover the story you inhabit and you'll find yourself too. What do you mean by that? And what is it necessarily that you are inviting people to in this book? Yeah, good. So um, there's a couple theses that are kind of in the background of how and why I'm writing this book the way that I did it. And one of the one of the first theses or, or background sort of posture is a thesis about reality itself. And uh, it's the idea that reality is a kind of story, right? This is a rich Christian tradition of viewing um, reality as a kind of story where everything is from God and everything one day will return to God, right? And so it's it's actually called um, narrat- uh, narrative realism. The reality is shaped like a kind of story. So that's one thesis that's at the back of this, right? And then there's a thesis about human persons as well. And that's that, and, and many people have noticed this, sociologists, philosophers, historians, literary critics like C.S. Lewis would, would have noticed this too, is that we are narratival animals, right? That we're creatures who come into this world as part of this ongoing story, and we, we immediately begin to try to make sense of our world so that we can find our identity, our meaning, our purpose within like the true story of the world. And so that's a thesis about us as humans, that um, not only do we live our life according to story, but we ought to, because that's when we discover our true name. And and then there's one final thesis that kind of directs why um, I wrote the book the way I did. And that's a thesis about the evidence for God and, and the true story of the world. And, and the idea, Stephen Evans in his book, Natural Signs and the Knowledge of God, I think uh, captures this idea well. And this idea that the evidence for God is just widely available. It's everywhere. Everywhere you look, you know, there's evidence. And some of it, of course, cries out a little bit, uh, you know, louder than other things. And so that's one thesis. But not only is it widely available, but it's also easily resistible in the sense that it needs to be properly interpreted and it can be misinterpreted. And so given the fact that we're narratival animals, given the fact that um, we're trying to make sense of our world, I wanted to write a story that would would help people see the evidence in a way that would relate to them as fully embodied humans. That um, And so I kind of cast the story as a quest, you know, an idea to discover the true story of the world. And in doing that, we discover our true name. So anyway, that's kind of what's what's going on in the backdrop there. Yeah. yeah explain a little bit more. What does that mean to be narratival beings? What, what's unique about that and what does it imply? Well, I think so. It, it just it means a couple of things. I think it means that um, we live, we see ourselves as part of an ongoing story, right? And so, if you think about reality or worldviews, I know in apologetics people talk a lot about Christian worldviews or just worldviews in general. They're a kind of story, a kind of overarching explanation for reality, for reality from which we can understand and locate our lives. And so, we're story, story. We live our life according to stories, but we also, you know. Uh, I'm convinced that culture is just, you know, um, that we make culture by making things and making meaning in our lives. And so that's just part of who we are. We're story listening, storytelling, story making creatures. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's, I think, what's going on there. Um, and I think what's going on beneath that, though, is this intuition that we have as humans. And that intuition is that, the, that reality is not incoherent, right? And that as theologians and philosophers have noted that we're, that humans are homo viators to speak with the learned, right? They use the Latin there, that we're creatures on the way mm-hmm. is the idea that we're pilgrims and we're seeking mm-hmm. this sort of destiny. And so really, if you think about your life and start in terms of origin, destiny and quest, right? That's, that's a story, a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? And that's what reality is. And so that's, that's what's going on. Yeah. So in the book, you are taking, 
broadly speaking, two different stories mm-hmm. to compare and contrast them to one another as a, as a foil to one another. You call them, well, once again, you're doing it very broadly, just you know, for the sake of uh, mm-hmm. uh, for the sake of what you're doing in the book, the non-religious story and the religious story. Can you break down each one of those uh, briefly? Yeah, so yeah, good. Broadly, you're right. These are great foils. Um, they could be naturalism and theism, atheism and theism as well, perhaps. But um, broadly speaking, the the non-religious story is one that's pretty familiar to people. Um, uh, and it would be the idea that all that exists is matter, and uh, you know we're trying to buffer ourselves from reality. Um, we're vulnerable, and so we're trying to buffer ourselves. So that's actually the story arc. In the beginning was matter. We're vulnerable to the world and each other, and so we try to buffer ourselves through technology and, and, and things like that. That's a kind of non-religious story, um, and it has a number of philosophical assumptions mm-hmm. that I unpack in that first introductory chapter. Um, it's usually largely uh, scientific in terms of their theory of knowledge, the idea that our Best knowledge comes from science. It's a pretty prevalent view out there today in culture, which often entails materialism. If our best knowledge comes from science or our only knowledge comes from science, well, then, you know, usually entails or suggests that the only kinds of things that exist are material things or physical things. It also usually in terms entails a kind of reductionism. There's a lot of what what I would call or others would call nothing nothing buttery going on in this this sort of story where you're nothing but, you know, organized mud, as Sean Carroll puts it in the big picture. He's a co- cosmologist from California Institute of Technology. Um, you know, you're nothing but molecules in motion. So there's a kind of reductionism. Often that leads to a kind of, well, atheism and then a kind of nihilism. So that's the non-religious story as a foil. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's that's very generic, right? And you need to have instances that are going to be more mm-hmm. refined. And then on the religious story, I just tried to cash it in terms of broadly speaking, in the beginning was God. So instead of the material universe, you have God. Uh, and then there's some sort of alienation that has taken place, and then humans are seeking, seeking some kind of union with God. And again, there'll be different, more fine-grained versions of that religious story. And in terms of the philosophical assumptions, people would differ, but for me, I, I think that there's at least a kind of dualism here, because you at least have the mental uh, or the immaterial and the material going on in this kind of a view. You have a kind of um, broad respect for not just scientific knowledge, but for other sources of knowledge. So there's a, a philosophical view, view called particularism by R- Roderick Chisholm that defends this view. But um, basically, the idea is that we have multiple mm-hmm. sources of knowledge. Um, other philosophical presump- presuppositions would be a kind of anti-reductionism, that reality is actually chalked through with um, complexity and dependency relations and fundamental holes at various scales of being. And so it's not just all molecules in motion, um, but, you know, humans or substances or living organisms are their own fundamental kinds of things. Um, and then kind of an anti-nihilism, right, that the, this view that there's meaning in the world and often uh, some version of theism. So I, I, yeah. do, I do kind of play with a version of theism as well. Yeah, so those are the two big pictures, the two big stories that are vying for our attention, that are competing for allegiance. Usually they're more fine-grained versions of those, but that's the foil that I use as I explore those more fine-grained versions throughout the book. (laughs) Yeah. You write that the non-religious story, uh, once again, broadly speaking, but we can Mm -hmm. see in pretty specific examples too, uh, tends to end in nihilism. Mm -hmm. Does the non-religious story always end in nihilism and... um, when it's so, let's do it this way. So whenever it does, explain why it ends that way. Why does the non-religious story end in nihilism tends to, and whenever it doesn't, what is the reasoning that uh, someone who follows this story would give? Yeah, so I mean, obviously these things are all up for debate, and I spent a whole chapter exploring the question of meaning. Um, and, and it's true that there are atheists that just sort of admit yeah, that if there is no God, there's no ultimate meaning to the world. And so, and maybe there's no meaning at all, right? There's no even like, you know, lowercase meaning uh, to our lives ultimately. And so that is a kind of nihilism. Um, and so I looked a little bit at, at absurdism, and then there's this thing called nice nihilism, kind of riffing on a contemporary and a philosopher named Alex Rosenberg from Duke University. And he, he calls uh, his view of morality nice nihilism, but I think it's actually appropriate for this view of morality too, that there's no, no meaning in life, but at least let's have fun, right? And if you can't have fun, let's at least take Paxil. Mm. It's kind of his proposal, right? So I think there are clear-eyed atheists that kind of um, make this connection. If there is no God, there's no ultimate meaning to life. And I think Bertrand Russell and atheists like that <coughs> would be in this stream. And then there are, there are others, such as Owen Flanagan, who's um, 
also teaches at Duke, and he wrote a book called uh, The Really Hard Problem, right? And he's riffing off David Chalmers, who wrote a book. David Chalmers is a philosopher of mind, and he, he dubbed the hard problem in philosophy of mind as the question of consciousness. And Owen Flanagan says, no, that's not the hard, that's, that's the ha- a hard problem, but the really hard problem is finding meaning in a materialistic world. And he tries to argue, given um, a version of atheism, that there is at least subjective meaning and maybe there's um, meaning for the human species, and that's good enough, right? Even though ultimately the world will end in some kind of heat death or cold death and there will be no human species uh, after that. Uh, at least there's some kind of meaning landscape, and he tries to ground it in a, what I call a kind of enchanted naturalism. And I think at the end of the day, that's the best option, right, if, if naturalism is the case, is we want to, you know, because I think our intuition is there is meaning to life, and we, want, we have these deep longings of the heart for meaning and value and purpose and identity, and we want these things to be true. But what happens is, given the narratival ending of the story, and Joshua Secrets, who's a philosopher, has written a lot on meaning of life, and he talks about how, given the narratival ending of the naturalistic story, where there's no... You know, once humans pass out of existence, which will, cosmically speaking, will be not too far from now, um, that ending actually infects today, you know, in our view of meaning and reality. It taints it, right? It's like thinking about if you go on a date and you know that you're not going to marry this person, well, it kind of taints the experience of the date now, right? And so the idea is that given the cosmic end of the universe on naturalism, there actually is uh, there is no real objective meaning to this world, um, and in fact, it makes this world, the pleasures of this world, less sweet. And so I do think that the best explanation for these longings for meaning turns out to be, as I describe it, this part in the book, some version of enchanted supernaturalism, of which Christianity is one version of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've talked to Oz Guinness, and he says that, speaking of... <laughs> all different kinds of ideas that come from various worldviews and conclusions of different worldviews. This being one of them that there's a lot of ideas that are thinkable, but not livable. He Mm. says, Mm. and this idea that we are in a world that is void of any meaning at all lives that have no ultimate meaning at all. That being one of those ideas that it's thinkable, but not livable. Mm. What do you think of that statement? And do you see this idea being, uh, having ramifications in the way that people live if they actually do try to live it out? Or is it something that their lives tend to contradict what they say or write? Yeah, that's good. I love that phrase, thinkable but not livable, because when we test worldviews, when we test stories, we want, I think there is this sort of pragmatic test, right, that it needs to pass. Um, it's okay, we can, there's many possible ways the world could go, there's many possible stories, right? But of course, we want them to be true. And one indicator of truth is, is is it livable? Is it pragmatically something that we can consistently hold? And I think that Asa's insight there, which is a great one, is that on many of these uh, accounts, whether they're naturalistic or or quasi-religious in some way, they don't they don't they fail the test of livability. Um, I'm thinking of like Alex, Alex Rosenberg's nice nihilism. Again, he's someone who says there is no meaning in the world. Given atheism, there is no meaning. That's just the cold, hard truth of the matter. But he says, still, we should enjoy it, right? We should be a kind of Epicurean and seek pleasure where we can find it. And for those moments when you're anxious, you should take take uh, anxiety medicine. That's actually how he ends his book, An Atheistic Guide to Reality. And that all sounds nice, right? Like if 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 I didn't think that God exists and I thought there was ultimately no meaning in the world, I would be a nice nihilism, right? You want to have fun. But the problem is, and many people have noticed this, is that there's this tight connection between pleasure and meaning, right? If you, and you can't, you can't so easily pull them apart. And so what happens is the seeking of the pleasure, if it's devoid from meaning, becomes less and less satisfying, right? And less and less pleasurable. And it ultimately doesn't satisfy. So you don't even get pleasure, right? You can't even live as a nice nihilist and enjoy life through drugs or Paxil or parties or whatever. Because in the end, those things too... Um, become tragic uh, tragedy ultimately right and and um, it becomes mm-hmm. tragedy all mm-hmm. the way down and that's that 's why I think that comment by us is so insightful right um, one of the markers for the uh, helping us to discover the true story of the world is can we consistently live it and I think that 's why again Christianity yeah. um, does so well yeah, nice nihilism that makes me think of uh, hedonism in a classical sense. Mm-hmm. as the meaning of life being the pursuit of pleasure. Right. 
It, it would, do you see a connection there? Is it, yeah, yeah, is it, absolutely. Like, is I mean, there I think any classical a... fault that influences this? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I think that um, there doesn't have to be a connection to like the normative ethical system of utilitarianism, but you're certainly right that nice nihilism is just going to turn the dial up on pleasure, right? Because we all know that's – that. I mean, I think – I shouldn't say we all know. It seems to be the case that pleasure is an intrinsically good thing, right? It's something that's enjoyable, and it's something that adds quality to our lives. And so why not just maximize that dial on pleasure, right? Um, and so there is that, that certain connection. Um, of course, as many people have noticed, though, um, like even I'm, I'm thinking of like um, Roderick uh, or um, Nozick, who did his famous thought experiment about the pleasure machine, right? I talk about this in one of the chapters on happiness, right? One, some people think that as, as Mill and Bentham, the, the utilitarians did equate happiness with the maximization of pleasure, right? So we were considering that in one of the chapters on happiness. And, and Nozick writes this great thought experiment. Um, you know, he says, well, if you could plug yourself into this machine where you could just turn that dial on pleasure and just for the rest of your life in the machine experience everything that your heart longs for, right? You know, hike Mount Everest, have lots of sex, take drugs, eat lots of good food, what, whatever it is, right? Whatever the, the, the pleasurable things are in life. He asked, would you do well, He actually asked, should you do it? And then I would ask this further question, would you do it? His argument is that you shouldn't because we, and he gave some pretty good persuasive reasons, right? For number one, we desire to actually experience these things in real life, not to have them mediated through a machine. Number two, we desire to be a certain kind of person that requires that we're rightly related to reality. But I think the intuition is that we wouldn't pr plug into this, right? And, and, and this is to me what's some of the silliness of like the metaverse that's ha taking place even in our, our culture today. Yeah. It's just not what we long for, right? We don't want to be one more step removed from reality and the genuine pleasures of this world. We want to be connected to them and, and experience their life, um, you know, uh, more immediately than that. And so, yeah, there's definitely a connection between the two. Um, and of course, I think we all think that pleasure's important. And so we want to account for that. We want a story that can make sense of that pleasure and, and unite it to meaning in the right way as well. Yeah. So throughout the book, you draw on different aspects of life that you refer to as like, um, like Karen's by that being like, uh, you know, stacks of stones that lead us on the way, which I really enjoyed, by the way, my, uh, my dog is a Karen Terrier. So I was excited oh, to, uh, read your inclusion of, uh, uh Karen's <laughs> in the, uh, is that a kind of dog the, or do they like, it's a, it's a rocks. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, no, no. It's a, okay. uh, it's a breed from Scotland. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful little terriers. Yeah. She's up here always next to me. She's up here, but, uh, but yes, I enjoyed that. But anyway, so you, you have these different chapters on different Karens of, mm -hmm. uh, 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 guides leading us along the way. You include life, meaning, morality, happiness, pain, beauty, and others. Um, what is your favorite? If you had to choose a favorite out of these chapters that you wrote, like just the, if you only had one to oh, explain tough. to someone, yeah, let's start there. What, what's your favorite? No, I'll, I'll go with what's one. The, what's your go-to? I have my top two, <laughs> but of my top one, I'm going to say the, the, my two favorite chapters were love and beauty uh, because I just discovered some things that were super interesting. So I'll, I'll go with beauty. Um, we'll, we'll go with beauty since I've got to pick one. And what was so fun about writing that chapter, um, I've been interested in this for a while and I've been studying it, but it gave me a chance to study a little bit more on the nature of beauty and, and look a little bit more at the tradition on uh, on thinking, thinking on the nature of beauty. And then it also gave me an opportunity to look at... Um, the argument from beauty or beautiful things to God. And what I found was that there's not been a lot on that argument. Uh, there, there is a history of thinking on this idea of beauty and, you know, can be plugged into a premise in a philosophical argument with a theological conclusion. But the arguments aren't super creative, right? And they're kind of just taking um, the same form as like the moral argument for God and, and swapping out moral facts for aesthetic facts. But there were a couple. Uh, there's an early 20th century FR Tennant wrote on the argument from beauty a little bit. And there's been a couple philosophers, Peter Forrest and Mark Wynn specifically, who have uh, kind of wrestled with and tried to update that. And so that gave me an opportunity to really look at that. And, and what I came to discover is that the argument from beauty is actually quite 
a bit more powerful than um, I think I first realized. And so I was interacting, you know, I, I spent a little time, I did my PhD at, at Purdue University and spent a little time at the end um, with Paul Draper. He came in while I was just finishing up my dissertation, but he was on my committee. And so, and throughout the book, I was interacting with some of Draper's work on the problem of pain and the problem of evil. But he's got one line somewhere in his writings where he says um, that beauty and facts about beauty provide some evidence for theism. And then he just says, but they're just overwhelmed by the evidence from evil, right? And I was kind of thinking about that claim that Paul makes, you know, that it provides some evidence. And I think that's just an understatement. And it's an understatement because of two facts that I discovered about beauty that, that I think show that beauty actually um, strongly suggests theism, right? And the two facts, and I plugged it into a kind of argument, yeah. a best explanation kind of argument, but the two facts are, number one, that beauty... Is beautiful things saturate our universe. And that's a fact that just cries out for explanation, right? If you think about it, think of just like human artists, right? Um, my kids have dabbled in art uh, when they were younger. I'm trying to learn how to draw. And let me just tell you that it's, it's hard to create through art beautiful things, right? It's easy to do ugly things. Like you should look at the, 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 the uh, drawing I just did, right? It's ugly. It's not good. What is hard is to create beautiful art. It takes a certain kind of skill, a certain kind of uh, know-how, you know, uh, to do that. And so if naturalism is true and the universe is just the product of brute for, brute f f you know, a brute fact or the product of blind natural forces, um, you would not expect that beauty saturates the world, right? Because it's hard to come up with beauty. But everywhere you look, from the starry heavens above to the mi microscopic, and everywhere in between, you see beauty. And that's a fact that cries out for explanation and I think would not be surprising on theism, but is enormously surprising given naturalism. The other fact, and I'll stop here, uh, that is sort of interesting when, when it comes to beauty is um, what I call the transcendent quality of beauty, and people have noticed this, is the idea that beauty is suggestive of something beyond this world, right? Atheists and theists alike for, you know, the 2,500 years that we've been writing and thinking about beauty have all noticed, noticed this quality about beauty, that it suggests something eternal, it suggests something infinite, it suggests something more permanent. Um, and if that, again, if naturalism were, were true, that would be kind of a surprising feature, right? Why would it have this? Why would reality be such a sham? Su suggesting something infinite, suggesting something eternal, suggesting something more permanent when there is nothing. But again, on theism, these things uh, are not surprising at all. And so all that to say, uh, I really enjoy thinking a little bit about beauty and art and the argument from beauty, beautiful things to, to, to God and uh, learned a lot uh, in that chapter as yeah. I with that. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Um, I feel like I remember reading something from uh, Richard Dawkins on how some people might want to use beauty as a reason or an evidence mm -hmm. for the existence of God, but there's essentially nothing to it. That's a non-scientific argument. And yeah, uh, we're just, you know, evolutionary, evolutionarily, uh, uh, adapted to appreciate the mm -hmm. nature or something that's right uh, along those lines but uh yeah well you know what's so interesting about that comment it, that sounds very much like something Dawkins would say right um and of course you're right the yeah. there are you know the naturalistic accounts then of beauty need to kind of often need to locate it in some sort of evolutionary advantage right and that that there's many many offers of how aesthetic pleasure and beautiful facts are conducive to survival. I don't think that, and I deal with some of them in the book, I don't think any of them ultimately can explain all instances of beauty, right? I mean, we think that desert landscapes are beautiful, and we think that Arctic light landscapes are beautiful, but they're not conducive to survival, right? Or we think that tigers are beautiful and lions are beautiful, but they're not always conducive to survival if we go and pet them. Um, and, and, you know, there's various reasons that they will give, and I'm, I'm not persuaded by them. But what's so interesting about that comment with Dawkins is that, you know, we don't really need beauty, but, you know, he's giving, like, think about his work, his books. He's giving arguments for a particular story that he thinks is true. And in philosophy and science, we have what are called theoretical virtues that we use to assess theories um, as true. truth. And we think that these theoretical virtues are truth indicative. And they would be things like simplicity, elegance, explanatory scope, explanatory power. And what's so interesting about these theoretical virtues is all of them are, all of them are aesthetic properties. 
And it's kind of ironic, and many people have noticed this, that you can't even assess whether or not a theory is true without appealing to beauty. So it's not that it's just some add-on that you can do without. Dawkins employs them in his own theory yeah. construction, right? And many have noticed there's this tight connection between the beauty, the beautiful and the true, right? And I would think that that's actually exactly right. So there's kind of an irony in, in, in comments like that. And that's why I think that the argument from beauty is actually a lot stronger than we, than we typically think. Yeah, yeah, that's excellent. And yeah, I agree. I think there's a, a lot more there to be discovered and, uh, and to be explored. And so, uh, you know, hopefully that's something that you'll keep writing on yeah. and, and providing more for in the future. Cause I, I think it'd be great to see more there. Um, let's do another chapter. Another, another Karen, you okay. said that love is another one that is one of your favorites. And so what about the, uh, the Karen of love? Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to include these kinds of pieces of evidence because they're not the typical things that you might find in an apologetic book, right? But um, but I do think they have evidential value, right? Especially when we want to respect people as fully embodied humans that obviously enter into loving relationships. But we want to think about this feature of the world, and I love the thing that was <laughs> so fun to think about in this chapter was there's this quote by um, or this comment by a Catholic theologian named Joseph Pieper. I think that's how you say his name. Uh, it looks like Piper. Uh, but I think it's Joseph Pieper. And in his work on the virtues, he, in his discussion of the Christian virtue of love, he talks about the fundamental affirmation behind uh, the statement, I love you, is this affirmation, I am glad that you exist, right? That I'm glad that you are. And I've just always been captured by that. That just seems right, right? When we think about love, this fundamental affirmation, and even like on the Christian story, there's this debate about why did God create? And I think that the, the answer partly, if not wholly, is he did it in love or out of love, uh, you know, for the well-being and the flourishing of creatures. And so it was really fun to kind of play with that that idea, this fundamental affirmation that you exist. And so in the chapter, it gave me a chance to kind of explore contemporary theories. And as you can imagine, in philosophy, all these things are up for, for debate and up for grabs. And so there's actually a number of contemporary theories about the nature of love. And it was really fun to kind of engage those and look at some of the features of love, that it's multi-directed, that it's active and passive, that it's... Um, you know, that's, that it's deep and enduring and that it's a valuable thing, right? All these sort of features. And then ask, of all the contemporary views on love, do any of them accommodate all these features of love that we note? And basically argued that none of them do. And, um, and, and so I ended up, uh, and, and Eleanor Stump, who's a Christian philosopher who I've benefited greatly from in my own work, she wrote this wonderful book called Wandering in Darkness. And in this book, she spends some time also interacting with the um, contemporary theories on love. Um, but what's so interesting is I think this 13th century monk, celibate monk, monk Aquinas, you know, actually got it right <clears throat> on the nature of love, and Stump does so well unpacking Aquinas's view. But for Aquinas, love is fundamentally the desire for two things: uh, number one, the desire for the well-being of the beloved, and number two, desire for union with the beloved. And I find that super compelling. I think that that's right. I think that that's what love is. And so, spend some time thinking about the nature of love. And then once I did that, again, plugging it into an argument from the reality of that kind of love, and I've experienced that kind of love, and I hope my readers have, I hope people have, you know, as well. I think it's, you know, we have instances of it in the world. But what's the best explanation for that? And again, on theism, this would not be surprising, given love is at the center of reality, right? God, we read in Scripture, at least in the Christian tradition, is love. And by that, one of what that means is that one of essential characteristics or, or qualities is love, being loving. So it's at the very center of reality. But again, on the naturalistic story, the existence of this kind of deep, rich, enduring, embodying love is surprising. Why? Because love is late and local, right? For all we know, it's just in one planet in this vast universe, the Earth. And relatively late, because humans haven't been around for most of that history. Um, and so it's kind of, it's not fundamental to reality, right? It's something that's, that's a byproduct, even, of the evolutionary story, right? And so it would be surprising. And, it would, and it's not just that, um, it would be surprising because of the nature of love, right? Love is not just 
Um, sexual union, the desire for sexual union, right? That could, could be a kind of lust. Of course, it's included in, in different kinds of love, mar- marital love specifically. Um, but love goes much deeper than just survival, right? There's a kind of flourishing or, th- or thriving that we long for in the beloved. And so, again, all that to say, the argument from love is one that um, I haven't seen a lot of. It is out there, right? Uh, and so it's really fun to kind of explore that. Because again, this is one of the, the great values of our world. And if we're discovering it, if we're on a quest to discover the true story of the world, it just seems right that we would want to consider something that's so central to all of our lives, that drives all of our lives, that that would have something to say about the true story of the world. So that's what I really enjoyed about uh, exploring that topic. Plus, I got to make fun of myself and uh, yeah. all the ways I've failed in loving my wife and my kids in that chapter. So that was a lot of fun, too. Yeah. Yeah, I love that understanding of love that you adopt from Aquinas. What is the definition of love that comes from a non-theistic uh, worldview? How do they explain it? Is it, uh, is it just a illusion created by chemical processes? Is it something more than that? In your research, what did you find? Yeah, so I mean, there's there's four... Well, so I think that... Two things. Uh, like, I'm thinking of Alex Rosenberg. So Alex Rosenberg uh, wrote that book, The Atheist Guide to Reality, right? And so he actually answers that your very question. So here's one instance of one atheist reply to that. He's, he actually asks in, on page three, what is love? And his answer is, is it's a strategic interaction problem, right? Oh, that's what it is. I'm like, no, that that doesn't satisfy, right? It's it, he says, don't worry about it; it'll find you, you know. Um, so on one story, it's it's just chemicals, right? It's just um, it's just chemicals in motion uh, that lead to a motion, a kind of emotion. And so I think, popularly speaking, the dominant view of love um, is that it's a kind of emotion that comes and goes, right? And that's why, if that's what love is, or marriage and, and relationships can be kind of unstable. But switching to sort of the academic discussion of that, I think the four contemporary views are compatible uh, you know they're compatible with naturalism and even with theism although I don't think any of them actually hit and those views just to give you a real quick listing and you can I can refer uh, your listeners to the book for more um, there's one view that's I call, it's called the volitional view it's just you know why do you love me I just do it's just just a brute fact I just do so there's for no reason right I just do that's called the volitional view and Harry Frankfurt's written on that and then you have the quality view why do you love me I love you because you have qualities X, Y, and Z, you know, you're beautiful, you're fun, and, you know, you're six feet tall or something. And, of course, maybe you even just in me sharing it, you can think of some worries with that. What about other beautiful, fun people that are six one? you know, uh, shouldn't you love them a bit more, right? You know, it doesn't seem stable and enduring. Yeah. So that's the quality view, you know, the yeah. volitional view, and then you have what's called the, the relational view, and that's the idea, I love you because I have a history with you, right? And that one, and all... and. And all, and then there's the emotional view. And all four of these contemporary views, I do think, get something right about love. And that's why they're live options, right? But what I did in the chapters, I, I kind of identified before we went into the contemporary debate, um, I looked at these five features of our own relationships. And we want a theory, contemporary or otherwise, that can accommodate all five. And I just argued that these contemporary views don't do that as well as for example, this this rich tradition and the Christian tradition that Aquinas, I think, both best exemplifies. Yeah, so contemporary views, naturalistic views, usually are going to land on some kind of chemical strategic interaction problem, uh, you know, that kind of language for love. Yeah. Another one of the chapters that I'm interested in is your chapter on pain. How is it that uh, pain is one of can be one of these guideposts that point us towards the story of Christianity? No, that's a great question. Yeah. So in in writing a book primarily for non-believers, I think believers or Christians will benefit from, could, will benefit from reading the book, but I wrote this for non-believers in, in seeking a story that is true to the way the world is and true to the way the world is, ought to be. um, We just have to, in, we have to deal with all the major features of the world, and one of them would be the reality of pain and suffering and evil. And so, in fact, in the book, you know, we're towards the end, and I have this group of hikers running at us, waving their hands, you know, saying, stop, you're going the wrong way. And as it turns out, it's Voltaire, and then Hume, who's kind of big, you can't miss him, he's there too. And, and Voltaire was one of the first to kind of, well, 
Voltaire has this powerful argument. Um, there's, I think, the earthquake of Lisbon in 17-something took place, and he writes this um, satire of Leibniz, who says this is the best possible world. And so I wanted to interact with this and take it seriously. Um, because, and, and your question is a good one, like, wh- how does pain figure into our, you know, this, this evidence for God? And I, I think it does in this way. I think that beneath the question of why is there pain, why is there suffering, why is there evil, is this intuition. And the intuition that drives that question, the intuition is this isn't the way the world is supposed to be, right? This isn't right. This isn't, um, yeah, something's gone drastically wrong. And I think that's the intuition behind that, that question, why is there pain and suffering? And so I wanted to, number one, take serious the question, because number two, I think that intuition is exactly right. Um, and so I don't think, I, you know, you, you know this, Aaron, and our listeners probably know this, but, you know, the number one argument for atheism is usually thought to be the problem of evil. It's the most, uh, you know, it's cited as the main reason why we have reasons to think God doesn't exist. I don't think that is the case. I think there's um, fine replies to the logical problem of evil and the evidential problem of evil. But we, even with that, you still have this question, why God? Did you allow, do you allow pain and suffering? And in that question, as we f- reframe it then, um, I've, again, been, I've benefited from Eleanor Stump and her work, Wandering in Darkness. And, and I think that there's two things that I find incredibly attractive, but make this problem more difficult. And, and what they are, are, um, Stump thinks, and I, I tend to agree with her on this, that for any instance of pain or suffering that some creature goes through, let's just stick with humans, um, that pain and suffering must benefit the sufferer, right? That's a very high bar. If you're going to provide a reason why God allows pain and suffering, it's called the person's constraint, but that's a really high bar. But I think it's right, right? I don't want my suffering to benefit humanity in general, right? I want it to benefit me if God is to have a morally justified reason for it. So any theodicy, any God-justifying reason for evil, I think needs to satisfy that person's constraint. But the second thing that Stump says is that any theodicy that has a chance of actually answering that question has to extend into the afterlife. And I've become convinced that that is right. And that's, again, where the religious story becomes front and center, right? You think about, like, Frodo and Sam at the end of The Lord of the Rings. You know, they're back in the Shire. They've, they've had this adventure. And suddenly, Frodo gets up to go to the Grey Havens, which is, like, Tolkien's heaven. And Sam's like, why are you leaving? We're done. The, the journey's over. And Frodo says, basically, that some wounds just can't be healed up with, with time in this world, Right, and that he needs to go to the gray havens, heaven, to to find ultimate healing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's right. Right, this world is there's many horrors of this world, and sometimes time does not heal all wounds. And so, if only this world exists, we will never find full healing, full satisfaction, full justice. The world will, you know, none of that will be obtained. But if God exists, there is the possibility of flourishing, perfection, glorification, if we want to talk theologically, all that becomes on the table on the religious story. And so, yeah, to kind of unpack that a little bit more, but um, I think there are possible God-justifying reasons for evil, and ultimately the best ones are those that are uh, have an afterlife, because our highest good as humans, as it turns out, is relationship with God, the God who made us. Yeah. Do you find... Any, I mean, I know you're a committed Christian, so, but do, do you find any of the non religious stories answers to be compelling, even in the slightest, um, or any of them persuasive at all? I know, obviously, not ultimately persuasive where you give your life to it, but mm-hmm. uh, in, any stronger answers to the problem of pain? Oh, for the problem of pain? Just, well, mm-hmm. it is what it is, it's the, it's the universe that we live in, you know. Okay, good. So, with respect to the, I was going to think in general, uh, there is a version of naturalism. If I were not a Christian, I think it's more most plausible. It's like this brute fact uh, naturalism. Russell, Eric Weilenberg, these guys, you know, yeah. they, uh, well, not Russell, but Eric Weilenberg will will argue there is objective value, there's objective beauty, there's objective moral truths in the world. Why do they exist? They just do. And that's the kind of atheism that I think is the most plausible. William Rowe, uh, again at Purdue, uh, was a kind of friendly atheist who, or in a kind of platonic atheist in the sense that he thought there was objective value in the world. So the kind of, yeah, so I guess um, 
if I were uh, a naturalist and I was trying to re- and I was wrestling with that, I would still have to punt to there must be some valuable state of affairs that results from this, and it's an objectively good thing. And to me, the best way to make that out would be mm-hmm. some kind of uh, brute fact atheism. Now, and in fact, I engage with brute fact atheism in my book because I do think it is the best atheistic alternative, right? Um, and, you know, even Graham Oppie, who's probably the leading Christian, uh, uh, sorry, non-believing philosopher uh, in the world, atheist philosopher in the day, in the world, he will argue for a lot of, you know, the world is just a brute fact. It just, why does it exist? Well, it's just a brute fact that it's necessarily the case that the universe you know, came into being the way that it did. Now, I don't find these things plausible, but at least they give you the possibility of of some kind of objective meaning, some kind of objective value, some kind of, um, it wouldn't be a God-justifying reason for evil, but like some kind of life-justifying way to, you know, at least find some comfort in this world. But ultimately, on that story, and this is the problem, yeah. right, is that you never defeat evil. You never defeat sin. You never defeat suffering. Only the Christian story mm-hmm. offers all these things um, one day being weaved into a, a beautiful painting or portrait that fully satisfies. <coughs> yeah. Yeah, because what it sounds like is that, as you said before, the problem of pain is usually referred to as like the the keystone argument against right. theism or the, the death blow argument against That's theism. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas... Whenever you really start to engage it well, it seems as though it's something that you can not only answer, but then turn back on the mm-hmm. atheistic worldview as one of the most powerful arguments <laughs> against the atheistic worldview, which it seems like you're doing here in this chapter of the book by actually turning that objection back on the naturalistic worldview um, as an argument against it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think I go back to that intuition, right? Because at this point in, this, in the, the journey, so the first part of the book, we look at some of the origin debates. And I'd be, love to talk, you know, these are fascinating to me too, right? The origin of the universe, the origin of life, the origin of species, the origin of humans. And in that part of the book, we're going from effect to cause or from fact to explanation, right? What, what best explains the fact of life? Or the universe? What best explains um, the, these questions? But then we turn a corner, uh, I think it's, I forget what chapter, that would be like chapter five or something. We turn a corner when we begin considering the contours of the human heart. And this question, is there meaningful happiness to be found? And so we, we explore morality, and then the question of meaning, the question of happiness, and then pain is right after this, right? I conclude that there is meaningful happiness, and the possibility is there, at least. Uh, but then pain is right the very next chapter that we that I wanted to explore. And part of that is because now what we're doing, what I'm doing is I'm looking at the contours of the human heart and noticing these deep longings that we have and asking of all the competing stories, what's the best fit? So now the direction is going the other way. It's going from the deep longings of the heart to what is the story all on offer that best accommodates those, right? And so one of the deep longings of the heart is for wholeness or for justice, and, and again, we need to ask, of all the competing stories, atheism and theism included, which is the best fit, right? And so that is a kind of turning yeah. of the tables, right? And I think it's important that we do that in a way that's charitable. But but again, um, it's not just that this is some argument that, that God can't handle, right? Um, but even beyond that, we all have these deep longings of the heart for wholeness and for goodness and for justice, what story accommodates those, right? And the, prop, the, the argument from, from evil to the non-existence of God isn't going to answer those questions. And so that question still remains. Uh, and that's what I wanted to make sure we explored. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, this book is a really unique approach to Christian apologetics and a unique way to go about arguing uh, some of the evidence for God that is outside of what we normally call the classical, you know, arguments for the existence for God. And so, you know, I love that. I love these types of arguments. And uh, so I'm really happy that you put them down in this book. As we get here to the end of our time, what is just the last thing that you want to leave with our listeners or the main takeaway that you want for people who are listening to this episode to take away or for readers of your book to take away? Yeah. Um, no, that's, that's a great question. I don't know. I guess, 
and just thinking back about why I wrote the book, um, actually, this is kind of a sequel to a, an earlier book that I wrote called Cultural Apologetics. And in that book, I'm writing for Christians, and I'm asking the question, how does the gospel get a fair hearing in culture today? And one of the uh, toward one of the more prescriptive uh, approaches in the book was that we've got to um, do two things to help people see reality the way it is. One is we as Christians need to see and delight in the world the way Jesus does. And then number two, we need to invite others to see and delight in reality the way Jesus does. And those are actually two feature book projects. The one that we're talking about today is for that second idea, um, that we need to help others. We need to invite others to see and delight in the world the way that Jesus does. right? And so that's kind of what I'm mm-hmm. trying to do here. So it's for nonbelievers, it's a work of cultural apologetics, not a work about cultural apologetics, where I try to actually do all the things I said we should do in apologetics, namely... Um, you know, engage the mind, but engage the, the imagination, you know, uh, respect the fact that we're storied creatures, right? That we make culture and then we're in turn shaped by culture, that we're fully embodied creatures that have longings in the heart that are not just for truth, right? Of course, any apologetic worth its salt must argue for the truth of its view, but we're, we have other longings for goodness and beauty besides. And so that's what I'm doing. So to the non-believer, I would just say it's an invitation to explore the true story of the world and, and to, um, to do it in a way that, that, that it hopes to be whimsical and encouraging and even-handed, but open-hearted, right? And to the believer, I would just um, invite you to look afresh at these features of the world that are actually quite amazing um, so that we could see the beauty of the gospel story, uh, you know, f- with fresh eyes once again. Yeah. Awesome. Well, once again, the book is called A Good and True Story from Paul Gould. It is out now, so you guys can go and get it. If you're sitting and picking up a copy, you can also go to the link in my show notes, and I'll have the book linked there. Uh, Paul, how else can people connect with you and follow uh, the work that you're doing? Yeah, you can find me on online. Uh, I've got a website, paul-gould.com, where I kind of house some of my writings, uh, essays, articles, and books. Uh, but you can find me on Facebook and Twitter, and then you can uh, find me, of course, on my faculty page at Palm Beach Atlantic University, as well as check out there uh, the MA in Philosophy of Religion that we're doing as well. Yeah. Awesome. You guys go check that out. Get uh, get connected with Paul. Follow his writing. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, I love the work that he's doing and um, in his books and also with the program at their school. And so make sure you guys look into that and, uh, and follow the great stuff that they're putting out. So, uh, Paul, really enjoyed this conversation, and I appreciate you making the time. appreciate your work in this book. And so thank you for being with us on Filter today. You're welcome, Aaron. It's great to be with you, and thanks uh, for taking the time to uh, talk with me. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the